The following is a conversation with Frederick Vervaert. Frederick is an Associate Professor in Ancient History at Melbourne University. Before that, he received his PhD at Ghent University, was a Fellow at UC Berkeley and a Visiting Scholar at Oxford University. His primary focus is Roman public law. On the podcast, we discuss the fall of the Roman Republic and look at comparisons between that period in history and America today. Frederick's insights were fascinating and I had a great time talking to him. If you like this conversation, subscribe on YouTube, review it with five stars on the podcast app, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Well, so they're all, um, I said it with, 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 in jest, but with, with a hint of seriousness, all great Romans were um, aristocrats. So they were all born with a huge sense of entitlement. Uh, and even the reformist, because um, there were arguably some were nastier than the others. But even the reformists, they always in the first place had their own self-interest in mind. Um, what, what was good for the people was good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very difficult to sort of pinpoint the greatest Roman. In the past, it was always, it was always very simple and straightforward. Great Romans were typically great conquerors, mm-hmm. like Caesar was a great Roman. Or Do you think Caesar is regarded by most, at least academics, as the greatest Roman? Um, maybe... Maybe in the 19th century and parts of the 20th century, but um, no, there would be very few now who would who would regard Caesar as the greatest Roman. Um, why? Why has that changed in the last hundred years? Um, well, I mean, on on the upside, Caesar was visionary, um, and to an extent, he did look after um, the common people. Uh, He was also visionary in that he decided to integrate the uh, elites of the subject territories into the Senate. He took the first steps on that road. Um, So these are all great things. And then he built roads and you know what, yeah. Um, But uh, we should never forget that Caesar was also um, extremely ambitious uh, and that uh, in order to achieve his goals, um, he was utterly ruthless. Uh, and then, um, like the key stepping stone for Caesar was his conquest of Gaul. And the conquest of Gaul, by ours, mo- by modern standards, would, would have been labeled... Um, uh, genocide. The campaign of a genocidal mm. maniac. Mm. Caesar bragged that he killed more than one million people. Uh, he, ha- he actually give, he actually minuted the precise number, and I mean, 
you could say, well, it's anachronistic to accuse Caesar of, of being a genocidal maniac when that, 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 that concept didn't exist. Mm. But already Pliny the Elder, who was a famous sort of scientist avant la lettre, um, who lived about 100 years later, he wrote a big encyclopedia. Even he wrote that um, killing so many people is, is doing damage to humankind. So even his contemporaries knew that what he did was... Beyond the pale. It was, um, well, pretty wild. Why is that, though? <laughs> Why is that that the longer ago someone lived, the more they can get away with as far as the standards that we judge them by? It, it's not so much the, long, the longer that somebody lives, it's more, um, more of um, like might is right. The winner... Um, the winner always has the just cause. I often tell my students, make, make the comparison um, when I talk about Augustus or Caesar, I often remind my students, and many are quite shocked, we think of these as great statesmen, right? And Augustus, we think of him as the bringer of peace. That's what he, he himself said. Uh, but don't forget, under the rule of Augustus, the empire more than doubled in size. So he was, by, by any standard, he was even more of an aggressive imperialist than his adoptive father, Julius Caesar. And yet we see him as the man who brought peace. Mm. By the same measures, we could, if Hitler had won the war, we could, have, we, we, we could have looked upon him as, what a great statesman. Mm. Oh, yes, he committed the Holocaust. And yes, millions of Slavs died. But he built a great empire. He brought peace to Europe, a continent torn by mm. wars. He built roads in Russia and blah, blah, blah. Do you think if Hitler hadn't been an anti-Semite, history would view him a lot differently? Um, if he hadn't been, and let's not, just, let's not just stop at the anti-Semitism, but there's also the persecution of the gypsies. There's the persecution. They were, going, they were planning on starving to death about 30 million Russians. Um, so he was a genocidal maniac. Mm. Hadn't it been for the genocidal racist um, um, policies, I think we would have looked upon him rather as sort of a failed iteration of Wilhelm II, you know, another wannabe conqueror who lost. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been put, um, he, the odium wouldn't have been as bad, if you know what I mean. Mm, he wouldn't be put at the height of evil which is how most people yes even, and he's know. rightly been put at, at the height of evil you know because it's one thing to conquer but it's another thing to sort of then start exterminating people i, I always find it interesting that hitler's seen as the most evil more so than even like a stalin or someone yes. and i've often thought it's just the aesthetic of how he conducted his evil yes. that makes him stick in the mind so much worse the fact of the striped pajamas the shaved heads the gas chambers has a bit more of a uh, sort of maniacal touch to it than Stalin shooting someone in the back of the head. That's true. I mean, for a long time, you know, and um, when I when I grew up, you would often hear people say, you know, well, the, the three the three worst baddies it's Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, as if they were all on on a par. I think Stalin and Mao did immeasurably evil things, but Hitler is still that much more evil because yes stalin killed a lot of typically more his own people uh, mao killed a lot of chinese he was actually most harmful for the chinese themselves 
Whereas Hitler had this well-defined racist ideology that neither Stalin nor Mao had. Mm. Stalin did not, when he conquered Eastern Europe, he did not wipe out certain ethnicities. He purged them, which is cruel. Uh, but the Nazis had a clear intent of ethnically cleansing uh, vast parts of Europe and were very lucky they lost the war because once the war was won, it, this was only the beginning of the killing. Do you, do you know who Dan Carlin is, the podcaster? It's an amazing sort of uh, historical podcast where he just goes in depth for like the six hours long sometimes on, okay, good. Uh, you know, he's got a, he's, he's got one on World War One, which is six volumes and each one goes for like five hours. So like these extensive sort of awesome. audio essays, they're great. But he, um, I was listening to him the other day and he was saying, he was saying how if Hitler hadn't been uh, an anti-Semite, mm-hmm. then there's a chance a lot of the Jewish German scientists who left Germany and helped the Americans develop the bomb, Hitler would have got the bomb before the before the Allies had. Possibly. Which is interesting, though. If he hadn't been an anti-Semite, it possibly could have been a much worse situation. Possibly, yeah. yes. Absolutely. And I remember I was in Princeton two years ago and um, some Jewish professor of, of Renaissance art... He, he made this joke when he was a student himself. He was under a professor at New York who was actually a refugee from, Ger- from Germany and who, who laughingly said, you know, Hitler, he shook that tree and all the finest apples fell into the lap of, of the Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, we shouldn't forget, for example, that in the First World War, um, some of the, the, the more formidable German inventions uh, were made by uh, Jewish Germans. Mm-hmm. Well, we seem so lucky in World War Two. It's almost like yes. that we had solved Enigma and just had like a ear on Hitler's thoughts the entire time. Absolutely, without yes. The fact that that America got brought into the war it seemed amazingly lucky. Absolutely. Um, and even just the Battle of Britain was so touch and go for weeks. Yes. It's almost like a yeah, too good to be true. Not to mention the, the colossal sacrifice made by the peoples of the Soviet Union. Right? Mm. How many did they? How many Soviets died in World War Two? I think um, what was it? Thirteen million soldiers and about seven million civilians. Mm. So maybe twenty million. A lot. Jesus. It's interesting with Russia as well. Despite the Cold War, we've always viewed them in hindsight as our allies against the Germans. But I've always just been like, if Hitler hadn't betrayed Stalin, they would have gone along with our extermination all the same stalin was an unwilling um unwilling partner um he, he was personally more inclined to um to make further deals with the germans mm. against the western allies mm. so he was sort of forced into the grand alliance against his um i've read this book once and they quoted his daughter it was alan bullock's biography and they quoted his daughter who said that after the war, Stalin sometimes said that together with the Germans, we would have been invincible. Mm. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Stalin uh, mm. either. Because no. <laughs> when, during the Battle of Britain, was it Hitler had all of Europe and Russia on his side? It was literally the yes. entire European continent against the British yes. Isles? absolutely, yes. Thank God for um, Hitler's hubris. Mm. Go with that. How did Hitler's hubris... Ruin him. Well, uh, I think it ruins him when he, um, as the war with, the, with, with Britain is far from over, 
he then turns east um, and uh, basically plunges Germany into um, an adventure. Um, I mean, he he saw he somehow knew he was reckoning with quick victory, but he somehow knew that um, um, that the twenty second of June, nineteen forty one, was a very fateful day. What what was twenty second of June? Uh, the twenty second of June, nineteen forty one, was the day of the invasion of Russia. Right. Yes. 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 Hmm. Yeah. All right. But let's stick to the Romans, Julius. Absolutely. Um, maybe just to give a bit of context go through the events at the fall of the ancient Roman Republic and what was the political system that was set up in its aftermath? So the, the events, the fall of the Republic. Um, Quite extensive, I imagine. Yes, but I'll try to summarize it, right? Mm. The Roman Republic had democratic features, but for all intents and purposes, it was, um, it was what you could term... Um, a plutocracy. So it was a system that was designed to be ruled by the wealthy and ideally the wealthy aristocracy. And the people had the right, had certain rights to, um, the people had to write, the right to elect annual officials from within that pool of wealthy Roman aristocrats. And the people could vote, vote on law, on, on bills and whatnot. Um, um, this all worked reasonably, reasonably well until a, a number of problems surfaced, and I'm not going to go into the complexities, and these problems required um, reform. One of these issues was an issue of our times and years, spiraling inequality and the landlessness of a growing number of Roman citizens. And if you were landless, yes, you remained a citizen, but you lost much of your political franchise you lost much of your leverage you could no longer participate in important elections and whatnot and um, the whole problem was that part of the elites were happy with the status quo um, and in that regard they're very similar to for example people who today populate the republican party or, or even segments of the liberal party they're not about reform they're more about preserving a status quo that is good for them because the system is sort of rigged, and rigged to their advantage. So there's those folk. But then you also had um, aristocrats, like Caesar was one of them, who understood that something had to give, uh, that measures had to be taken. And by measures, I mean um, very cheap distribution of food, land redistribution, uh, whatnot. So pro, pro, what we could call social reform, crude social reform. But the thing was, the Roman political system worked so that the, the person who achieved significant reform basically built a clientele amongst the people who benefited from this. So if you, if you had a proposal to carve up half of Italy and divide it up amongst 400,000 people, say, that's all good and well, but those 400,000 people become your political clients and because they have been enfranchised, because they became propertyed citizens again, they'd vote for you. So the, the aristocrats sort of had a legitimate argument that anybody who attempted these things was dangerous and was a potential tyrant because they would 
unbalance the system. Um, and that that's so, sort of so a, a populist, pretty much. Yes, but the the the, the conservatives also played populist. But what's uh, what's the difference between that and any politician of any kind? Um, the difference between that is that it's still an, an old aristocracy, um, and it's it's pretty much it was not a caste system, but. I think less than 10% of the consuls came from families who had never produced consuls before. So, so it was entrenched. It was, it was very entrenched. Pseudo-monarchy. Uh, it was pseudo-hereditary um, um, uh, political system. Mm. Yeah. So that, and that leads to dynamics of internal, uh, ever more spiraling, cataclysmic Strife, but that rubbed people the wrong way from within that aristocracy, not necessarily the people. The people who lost out, ironically, the people who lost out the most in the under the new imperial system were in the first place the old aristocracy because they they lost the the oligarchy was undone and became a monarchy. The people of Rome lost certainly lost their democratic rights. Arguably, for the vast majority of the people who inhabited the Roman world, it was a plus because the empress came to power and they created a new bureaucracy, a new military system, and they recruited from, from within the lower social strata because these people had no pedigree and they were loyal. So in, in, in a nutshell, the empire meant sort of democratization of the institutions um, even if the system now became a monarchy. And the same with the people who inhabited the provinces. Under the Republic, every politician who had run for, uh, for office, office was not remunerated. So they ruined themselves often to win a campaign, US-style campaigns. Mm. Then they would go to the provinces and they would ransack their province. When the emperors, when, when monarchy is established... Um, the empress have no interest in that sort of predatory behavior in the provinces because it it leads to revolt, and revolt looks bad on the emperor. So the <laughs> Rome was arguably more was better for the people as an empire than it was as the late republic. Uh, I would say that for um, for the common people, um, especially beyond Rome, because in the elections it was typically Rome and then some people in Italy, but no further afield, because you, could, you had to come to Rome to physically vote. Uh, but the early empire, I think, for the vast majority of Roman citizens who inhabited uh, Italy and especially the provinces, and also for the, the people in the provinces themselves who did not have Roman citizenship, the empire was more of a blessing than the Republic. Have you read Mary Beard's Rome? Um, I've read bits and pieces of it. Yes. She has a um, line in it where she says that the uh, empress didn't make the empire, the empire made the empress. <laughs> what do you think of that? Um, yes and no. I mean, um, the empire would not have happened were it not for extraordinary individuals like Caesar or Augustus. But once, once the empire is in place you do sort of have what you could call a deep state uh, that runs and uh, emperors become uh, expendable. And if some emperor, for example, falls out of mercy with one of the major components of the deep state and 
the military, for example, or his guards, um, well, they will always find creative ways to rid themselves of the emperor. And then typically when an emperor is killed, um, they're never talking, let's restore the republic, because most people have a vested interest in the imperial show going on. So it's always a debate about um, who is the best guy to run the show. But I think it was also that that quote suggests that the uh, the, the late republic got to the point where it was essentially an empire. In t- like in it was an imperial republic, yes. yes. Yeah, yes. an imperial republic because it, that was too... That was such a big, op- such a difficult operation to run under a pseudo democracy that uh, it necessitated uh, a dictatorship, a strong man to actually well, make it work. That's not Beard's view. That view was already, um, I think, Tacitus. People like Tacitus and Cassius Dio already came up with that idea. Um, I do not necessarily agree. Um, if the aristocracy, if the aristocracy had been more intelligent. And if some individuals had been able to rein in their ambition, the system could have worked. The Romans had special magistracies that run for up for three years, sometimes even five years, to deal with certain issues. They could have kept the Republic going. But I'm with Cicero. Cicero, uh, under the dictatorship of Caesar, he wrote some uh, a few brilliant treatises on politics. And he blames it. He says we had the best possible republic, checks and balances, whatnot. Uh, and of course, it was an aristocracy. But he said um, a system that could not be undone except for the faults, the great faults within the governing class. So he blames his own social class for ruining the republic. And he was right. Do you feel Cicero, and especially what Cicero thought of Caesar, mirrors the way a lot of people feel about Caesar? He was, he was very ambivalent. Very ambivalent. Yes. About yes. Him. What were Cicero's thoughts on, on Caesar? So he thought Caesar, they, they actually were sort of um, classmates. They were belonged to the same generation. They were friends when they were young men. Uh, I think Caesar, uh, Caesar had even borrowed Cicero money because uh, rich Romans would not go to the bank for money. They would typically borrow off one another at, uh, at zero interest. That's how it worked. Um, so there was that. Caesar certainly had respect for Caesar as a great orator, as a clever politician. Um, but on the other hand, he was always deeply suspicious of his agenda. Um, and, and what he thought was um, a dangerous populist streak, because Caesar did side with some notorious predecessors like Marius. Uh, and Marius had brought the Republic to near catastrophe. Um, Marius was his uncle, though, wasn't he? Marius, By marriage, Marius but... had married his aunt Julia. Mm. Yes. Um, and Marius was uh, yeah, a very debatable personality. He was a great military commander, but a um, very crude politician. And in the 80s BCE, uh, he had fought a civil war that had almost... I mean... The Republic could have very well could very well have fallen in the 80s BC. The whole building collapsed, and it was only Sulla who revived it. Um, but so Cicero saw saw that in Caesar too, and he was always very suspicious. He was also a bit suspicious of Pompey, but he saw Caesar as the greater threat. 
Probably because maybe he, maybe the greater man and hence the greater threat. Probably because he was mm. yes more intelligent, um, sharper, mm. and perhaps even more ruthless than Pompeius. Yeah. When Sulla and Marius had their own civil war in the 80s BC, why did Sulla end up giving up his power back to the Republic after he, <laughs> well, after he took over? Um, because Sulla was at heart um, a um, arch-conservative Republican. But paradoxically, in order to sort of resurrect the Republic from its ashes, um, he made the wrong move, really. He set himself up. He took Rome by force, um, organized a massive sort of Stalinist-like purge, um, and then um, had himself elected to a dictatorship with a whole raft of uh, martial law emergency powers. And he ruled Rome like that for over two years, which was unprecedented. And then when he thought that um, the system that he had created was more or less stable and ready to sort of run without him, he abdicated. Having put in place the laws that he, th he thought would protect the Republic even from people like himself. But do you find that surprising that he gave it up? Uh, well, Caesar later, um, I think a lot of people were quite surprised that he did. Caesar later sort of uh, uh, made fun of Sulla like he didn't uh, know his ABCs, like he was, he was a madman for abandoning the dictatorship. Uh, but uh, that basically tells us that Caesar believed that the Republic was dead in the water and that Sulla already, in, after what he had experienced himself, should have known better, like you cannot revive a system that is bankrupt. Um, we need a new, a new autocratic style of government. Um, but that was also Caesar misunderstanding Sulla's intentions. Sulla wanted, wanted the aristocracy to remain in place, whereas Caesar wanted to supplant it, wanted to make the aristocracy subservient to um, an autocrat. Do you think Caesar always planned on becoming emperor? No. You think he wanted to do something more similar to what Sulla did? He wanted to, no, not really Sulla. He wanted to do something more similar like what Pompeius did. So Pompeius would typically combine um, uh, formidable powers. Um, what, what's the term? Pompeians? Uh, Pompeius, his great rival Pompey. Oh, Pompey, sorry. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Pompey, um, Pompey so, sort of often ruled by proxy uh, and as the first man in the state. And um, Caesar at the very least wanted to be on a... On a um, Caesar would not... Um, there's, there's this fantastic um, little line in Luke and he probably has it from Livy. It says, um, Pompey could not brook an equal. Caesar could not tolerate a superior. That's, of course, it's a damning verdict of Caesar, but it's even more damning of Pompey. Well, it's, that goes to what we were saying before about him almost being a lesser man, less of a threat. Caesar uh, indeed wanted to, um, he wanted to be sort of, um, well, at the top, at the very top. And he could, he would tolerate being there with a few others, but certainly he would not tolerate being 
second. Uh, and that ambition, because um, ultimately it came to civil war when Pompey uh, sided with Caesar's enemies and they would force Caesar to basically disarm, come to Rome, be trialed, whatnot. Uh, and Caesar would simply not suffer that. So he literally went to war to uh, preserve his um, position at the helm of the state. And he couldn't be arrested whilst he was in Gaul either, could he? He could not, no. Mm. But they, w- they would have arrested him as soon as he came back to Rome. Possibly, yes. Yes, mm. chances are very likely. But even that, even had they not arrested him, he wanted to become a consul for a second time. And he also felt that he was deserving of a triumph over uh, the Gauls. Uh, and especially vis-à-vis Pompeius. Pompeius had held three consulships. Uh, Pompeius had celebrated three triumphs, and Pompeius had often broken every ruler was to break. So in Caesar's eyes, he thought, why not me? Exactly right. And we know he leveled that criticism at Pompey when he, when he talked to his men. I mean, that guy is a usurper. Uh, he, he has all the privileges. He broke all the rules. And they will deny us some honor. Of course, his soldiers were, ang- were angry. And of course, they followed him. Mm-hmm. It was an easy case to make. The, our earliest indication of Caesar having tyrannical, developing tyra- tyrannical designs is once he has crossed the Rubicon and uh, the fighting begins. What was the Rubicon just for? Small little river between mm-hmm. his province in the north and in Italy, because Italy was sort of a, a disarmed neutral zone, mm-hmm. which made sense. Once he crossed that line, two or three months later, he has a, an interview with a junior senator, and the junior senator then writes to Cicero or comes to Cicero and says, uh, Caesar has told me um, that the system's broke, that the Senate has lost its authority, and that in the future, all will be decided by him. That's April 49. We're talking three months, three, four months after the crossing of the Rubicon early in January. So that's the, the earliest indication we have of Caesar beginning to harbor monarchical designs. And he probably, he did so in an atmosphere. He knew that he was in, um, that it was going to be a fight for survival. I mean, to the death, the civil war, either he won and would, would basically become the man who pulled all the strings or he, he lost and he would be killed. Similar to what he said to his mother before he went to, um, uh, was he... Running for election as the chief pontiff, chief pontiff, and yes. he said either I'll uh, come home elected or not at all. And he's Caesar, genocidal or not genocidal. <laughs> you've got to love the risks that he takes in his he career. He always went for broke. Always went for broke and always nailed it. Always yes. got it. Yes, and just the there's, amount of risks he took. There's a parallel, a very nice parallel there, a direct parallel with Hitler. When Hitler was on the cusp of invading Poland and the Allies made it clear, we will not let this, like you took Czechoslovakia, uh, you basically, well, um, you cheated us there. Uh, here's, the, here's where we draw the line. And mm. Goering, Goering, the second in command, who was more sensible than Hitler, he saw it coming and he actually said, he, he told it, uh, the Mein Führer, um, there will be war if you do this and we might lose this war. And Hitler said, you know that in my career, I have always gone for broke. Mm. Difference between <laughs> Caesar and Hitler, though, is Hitler screwed up on his later gambles. Whereas Indeed. Caesar, I feel. Caesar, uh, but he was also, I mean, it's also a matter of sheer luck, right? 
At some point in Egypt, Caesar was actually losing. There was a, a popular uh, uprising in Alexandria. He had few troops. Was this during the civil war with um, Pompey? Uh, Pompey was dead, but it was Mm. when Caesar um, went to Alexandria, to Egypt, uh, in pursuit of Pompey. Mm. And um, Caesar actually had to jump into the water off the pier, wearing his armor. He he nearly drowned. It could have been game over there. Do you think Caesar's the greatest military tactician of the most prominent Romans? Uh, he certainly is there with the very great, the very brightest and best Roman military tacticians, no mm. doubt about it. Yes. Because what would have been, what would have been the biggest um, uh, juxtaposition in numbers that Caesar would have faced? Like at a leisure, how many how many Gauls was he facing, and how many men did he have, and uh, still come on top? At a leisure, I, I think he had. I don't know the numbers exactly, but he had about seventy, eighty thousand men. Uh, but he was besieging a, a very lo- a force that was about the same size. And at the same time, his, um, the besiegers were besieged. From behind. Uh, and mm. let's say that Caesar probably faced a quarter of a million goals there. Uh, but they, they That's he crazy, didn't lose though. what they lost. They lost their nerve. Mm. He did not. Romans in general didn't se- seem to lose their nerve in the same way that their opponents did. The Roman soldiers, I mean, th- these guys had to serve for typically 20 military campaigns. Uh, they were hyper fit, super tough. They were conditioned. Um, yes, I mean, they were sort of um, trained to, to, to sustain, um, not to give up. There's this famous example of a single cohort that's about 600 men holding out for a day against 8,000 goals. Uh, and they just formed a unit. They formed like a, uh, like a turtoise. And then they just held their ground until, they were, until the relief force arrived. That's crazy. That is totally what, crazy. What, what was the name of the legion? That was, was it the 13th was the most famous of the legions? Uh, Julius Caesar's most loyal. His most loyal was the 10th. The 10th. Yes. And what made them? Their fierce loyalty. I'll give you one. Uh, there's one interesting tale. Um, early in his campaigns in Gaul, Caesar had to fight um, a, a powerful Germanic alliance that had occupied Gaul. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and his soldiers were fearful because these guys, they were tall, they're massive, you know, freaky, long-haired people with big axes. Um, and um, Vikings, essentially. Sort of, yes. Uh, and... Then Caesar famously uh, told his men, well, tomorrow uh, I and the 10th legion will go. Um, You can stay here if you want. Uh, And uh, the next morning, his entire army was lined up because it was sort of the ultimate insult. Mm. He had called them cowards without doing, Mm. using the words. Mm. He was very good at... um, He knew how to motivate his army better than anyone, I think. Absolutely. He always played um, their sense of... into their sense of pride and and, and shame. Mm. At one point, they were mutineering. He called them citizens. Why? why As as opposed to soldiers of Rome? Yes. And then they were so offended that they they dropped the mutiny. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. How does Augustus... Well, how does Octavian uh, enter the scene... At the fall of the Republic. Well, at, at Caesar's death. Yes. Where is Octavius? Uh, who is he? 
how's he been brought up up to this stage? How old is he? So who is Octavian? Um, so he was um, Caesar's grand nephew or something. Caesar was his great uncle. Um, um, but blood. he was the closest. Yes, right? yep. by blood. Um, Octavian's mother was a blood relative of uh, of Caesar's. Yeah. Um, Caesar had not. We have no evidence that Caesar had sort of. Well, Caesar had adopted him by testament, but already during his lifetime, Caesar was favoring the young man. Yeah. Um, so Caesar would have seen. Seen the I mean, potential. I, I, I almost feel like the most uh, impressive thing about Caesar is how astute he was about Augustus being his successor. Yes. Because, I mean, the later emperors don't seem to be as consistent with that. There were three things. It was the closest thing he had to a son. Um, second thing, um, Octavian was doggedly loyal to Caesar, like doggedly loyal. Um um, at some point, Caesar was campaigning in a very, like the final civil war against his enemies. And Octavian, though he was very sick, traveled all the way to Spain to be there with his great uncle. And then the third thing, he was also a very sharp tool. And the combination of these three things, so bloodline, um, loyalty, and uh, intelligence and craft, probably made Caesar decide that he's going to be my... Not a warring man, though. Augustus. Not a warring man, but very clever at appointing people who knew how to make war and who probably also dared to sort of tell him the truth before key battles. Mm. Uh, Augustus surrounded himself with deeply loyal people, but they would not necessarily have been stupid yes people. Mm. Um, so that's when Caesar is killed, comes out that uh, by testament he had adopted Octavius. Octavius was then 19 years old, was with the army in Macedonia because Caesar was planning another great war of conquest in the east. And that would have been, what, his first year as a soldier? His first year um, soldiering in a significant capacity, yes. And up until Caesar's death, he's just on a normal trajectory of a Roman noble. Yes, but uh, being one of Caesar's favourites because Caesar had already... Uh, Caesar had sort of um, the, the dictator. There was a sidekick called the master of the horse. Caesar had appointed one master of the horse for life, Lepidus. Why? Lepidus was not the smartest kid on the block, but Lepidus was doggedly loyal. Uh, uh, but however, that hadn't stopped Caesar from duplicating this office. So uh, because we know that he had also appointed for three successive years, three other cronies of his. And one of them was young Octavius. So this, this indicates that Caesar was going to sort of um, advance Octavius's career at meteoric speed. So when Caesar dies, Octavius, of course, sees his, he, was, he was anointed for the sort of this top job three years down the road. And this, this is all gone. And, but it's all been fast-tracked on Caesar's death. No, no, no. When Caesar dies, um, the dictatorship dies with him. And also this, this office of master of horse. So these jobs are eliminated. Why master of horse? Why is it? Uh, it's an old title because in the, in the old days, the dictator would command the infantry, the most important part of the army, and the, his sidekick would command the cavalry. 
Um, hence the Master of Horse. Second, was an second in command. Archaic title, mm. yes. So th those jobs are gone. Everything else continues. But Octavius, he was 19 years old. He was going to be Master of Horse when he was 22-ish. Uh, but that, that's now gone. The best he could hope for is to run for consul uh, at the legal age. That was 20 years down the road for him. How old was that? 40? 40, 40. Yeah, 40. So he didn't want to wait 20 years. He was like, he lost the top job, the second best job in the state because Caesar was dead. And he had a choice then, either fall back and like pursue a normal senatorial career um, or go for broke and claim his father's um, legacy and, um, for, for example, claim the consulship at a very early age. And that's what he did against the advice of some of his senior counselors and his own mother. Like, don't do it. Don't go back to Italy. You'll get killed. You're a young man. It's a, it's a hornet's nest there. Um, that's, but, what, but that's what I find so fascinating about Augustus is that he's 19, been thrown into the, the worst sort of civil strife, volatile well, situation you could possibly be thrown into. The, the son of the, well, so the heir of the dictator who's just been killed. I'm like, I, I was always surprised they never killed Augustus as well, straight away. They saw, he, they, they saw him as insignificant. They were planning on killing Mark Antony. Because he seemed like the more obvious. Because he was sort of the real strong man on whom Caesar was leaning. Why was Mark Antony always so loyal to Julius Caesar? Because they always just, that sort of, to me, seems like the, you know, the ultimate friendship from the ancient Roman world. Like they just seemed so loyal well, to Well, they had served together in Gaul. Um, it was not, not, not self-evident because Antony's um, grandfather had been killed by the man of Marius. Um, so they were traditional rivals, really. They the, the families going back were actually was this, the families were at the conservative side and um, Caesar had always been uh, uh, pro-Marius. But um, somehow Antony must have liked, because Antony was sort of also a man with bravado and gusto and um, he must have liked sort of Caesar's unconventional streak. Um and he served with Caesar in Gaul as a young man. And I mean, Julius, it's often the case, uh, many aspiring tyrants or aspiring dynasts, they love to recruit amongst the young because the young are um, impressionable and the young typically clamor for action and change. Like the world is, I mean- the, And nothing's more important to a tyrant than loyalty. Exactly right. And you need to, I assume they want to entrench that yes. in their mindset young. Yes. So Anthony did have, there were a few stuff ups um, and Caesar was angry with him mm. and, at some points, but the loyalty was never in question. Mm. Uh -uh. So Julius Caesar is killed. What did Octavian do after that? Um, as soon as Julius Caesar has been so killed. So when Caesar's killed, um, oh, initially the situation is very tense. Octavian is away in Greece, right? And... Um, Antony, to his credit, ultimately strikes a deal with the, uh, the so-called liberate, the assassins. And they make a compromise. Like, we will honor all Caesar's decisions. Um, 
On the one hand, on the other hand, Anthony carries a law that abolishes the dictatorship, which makes it quite clear that he has no intents to pursue um, to pursue Caesar's career and become the next dictator. So it's sort of a... Um, a return to A trade-off, yes. And yes. it seems that Antony would have been happy with sort of being like a, uh, a pre-Civil War Pompey or Caesar, like one of the power, the kingmakers in the Republic. I was just going to say he seems more like a Pompey than a Caesar in that sense. That he, yes, because yep. he, makes, he makes a deal. Hmm. Uh, he's going to remain a very important guy, but he's happy for the Republic... To endure. But then what happens is, um, well, ma uh, Deus ex machina, young Octavius arrives on the scene. Uh, and the first thing he does is raise an army of volunteers and veterans. And he basically wants to shatter this compromise. And he, he, he wants nothing to do with this amnesty because there had been an amnesty as part of it, the compromise. So he, he crusades um, on a platform of we're going to get each and every one of these assassins. But they were like more than 50 or about 60 people had been involved. So that's a lot of senators. Mm -hmm. So and he wants them all like trialed and, and persecuted and exiled or killed. Uh, and then that as a 19-year-old. Yes. Yeah. And that forces Anthony's hand because mm -hmm. Anthony risks. He is basically leaning on the former Caesarian constituency. Mm -hmm. But now that constituency is being sort of uh, eaten away at by Octavius, so Antony also then takes decisions to, bo to bolster his own position um, against Octavius, but also against the Senate. And he, ta he accepts, a, well, he sort of takes a command that had been taken by Caesar to launch his assault on the Republic. And that's when he becomes an enemy of the Republic. That's when he, when, the, when again the Senate sees him as enemy number one. Like, see, Antony is a hypocrite. He wants Caesar's job after all. And Octavius very cunningly then aligns with the Senate. They both they they, they fight Antony. Antony uh, is forced to re retreat into Gaul, uh, and then uh, Octavius then basically sort of stages a coup in Italy and becomes the first man in Italy. And then makes a deal with Antony because the assassins in the meantime have been organizing in the east, raising huge armies. And they need to unite, I guess. Yes, they forgot about their differences. So what was what was the framework within which they formed their alliance? Um, so they decided on what you can call a, a legalized coup d'etat. They could not be seen. I mean, the Romans were extremely legalistic. They didn't like sort of arbitrary, they didn't like the idea of a strong man who simply relied on brute military force and had no official authority. So what they do very cynically, they agreed to set themselves up uh, as uh, the board of three for the restoration of the Republic, casting the Republicans as a tyrannical faction that wants to destroy the Republic. So this is almost, it's almost dark humor, right? Uh, and the office is very consciously modeled after that of Sulla. It's basically Sulla's job. Sulla was dictator, but they sort of a special sort of dictatorship, but they sort of make it a, a board of three instead of one man. And who were the three? So the, the first was Antony, the second was Lepidus, and the third was Octavius. Um, but Octavius sort of very 
over the years sort of outmaneuvered his opponents and became the first of the of the three, the most powerful of the three men. How did Octavius outmaneuver Antony and Lepidus? So how did he outmaneuver? Well, Lepidus was sort of pushed to the side. Lepidus after. seems like a pushover. <laughs> Lepidus a was, I mean, Lepidus, the funny thing is, um, he didn't live up to his nickname. Lepidus means cunning, crafty. It's, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> yes. At some point, so Octavius is waging, so after the Battle of um, Philippi against Brutus and Cassius, um, Lepidus remains, but Octavius becomes a strongman in the West, Antony the strongman in the East, and Lepidus is relegated to Africa. And Africa being seen as the least consequential of the provinces. It was populous, it was rich, um, but there was not much military action. Uh, it was sort of almost like honorary retirement. And at some point um, down the road, Octavius is fighting Sextus Pompeius, one of the surviving sons of Pompey. And it's a very difficult struggle. And at the, at the moment, it's not looking up for Octavius and Agrippa. He makes a phone call to Carthage, Africa. Lepidus, um, would you please join me? Lepidus obliges, sees his opportunity to sort of carve out more of for himself and lands in Sicily with 22 legions. How many, how many men in a legion? Uh, about 5,000. So it's a vast army. And then Octavius, instead of risking uh, uh, an engagement, Octavius actually infiltrates the camp of Lepidus and docks Lepidus's men into coming over to him. It was an extremely bold... Over 100,000 men. Yes, it was an extremely bold move, but he pulled it off. So he convinced 100,000 of Lepidus' own men to side with him against yes, Lepidus. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Lepidus, he didn't kill him because now he wanted to recast himself as merciful. So he basically... Much like Julius Caesar. Yes, so he basically um, sacks him, uh, fires him on the spot, um, and, but he, then he assumes his army, and, and then he is sort of the uncontested master of the West... And from that moment in time, um, the frictions gradually increase with Anthony. And then the rest is history, of course. Um, uh, had, the, had the empire been the same with Anthony, that is highly, a highly interesting question because Anthony promised that he would lay down his office after the civil war. Um, he may well have done it. Uh, so it could have been a different system. Uh, perhaps a bit less overly autocratic. We do not know um, what Anthony would have done. Uh, of course, there would, there would have been no shortage of men in Anthony's ranks who would have told him it would be crazy to give it all up now. I mean, do what Caesar which did. Is, yeah, which is what I feel happened with Caesar. Yes. It's weird how there's like an, a, people have a affectionate spot for Julius Caesar. Do you feel, do you feel that? Yes, 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 yes. It's strange though, isn't it? Maybe it's just because well, he was killed. Well, it began, you know, in, you know, Mommsen, Mommsen was a famous German ancient historian. Mm. He even won the Nobel Prize, mm. wrote over a thousand articles. I mean, he was a genius. Mm. But Mommsen's adulation of Caesar is just, it's absolutely um, cringeworthy. Mm. He calls yeah. him like the, the, the greatest and most genius human being that ever, had ever existed. And he also calls him, and this is, of course, Prussia, 19th century, enlightened despotism, mm. the Demokraten Diktator, 
the, the, the democratic, democratic dictator. dictator yes <laughs> Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. did you you saw the election today um no i i follow it up but i'm not i don't i don't i was not obsessed with it but i like everybody every other hour every mm. two other hours i would check on the on the tally well they've i think it was literally just an hour it's over now, it's yes. over it's over yes yes do you see any similarities between uh, America today and any period between 100 BC and um, no, 10 BC, pretty much when that whole period um, of ancient Rome? I think, I mean, Trump, he stands in very bad repute and I'm also very glad he's gone for a raft of reasons. But the worst fears have as yet not materialized. It could still happen, but the worst fear... Like late, late Republican scenario would have been that Trump would have contrived or worsened some emergency. For example, trigger a genuine civil war in the streets of America. Uh, not directly, but through his agents. You know, use all these militias to actually start attacking government buildings and start killing black people or whatnot. Create an emergency, fan the flames, and then declare martial law cancel the elections or postpone the elections indefinitely or assume extraordinary powers that can allow him to continue. Is that the uh, the way these things generally go? Is that something that's been used before by people? Augustus was a master at um, either engineering or worsening crisis to get uh, the emergency powers he required. Hmm. But of course, unlike Trump, Augustus could more or less rely on the uh, loyalty of the armies. They were loyal to him, not to the Republic. That was a novelty that Caesar had introduced. Um, the soldiers swore the oath of loyalty to Caesar. Augustus did the same. Whereas Trump, I think it would be highly doubtful. He could probably count on the loyalty of, of well-armed militias. But I doubt that um, if he would order the army in to sort of um, bolster his, uh, I doubt. I doubt that the, the that the Pentagon would necessarily follow suit. He was not very popular with some of the top brass to begin with. He said very uh, a great many stupid things about veterans. Um, always sacked military men. He would hire them and then sack them when they were not puppets. Um, so I think that the U.S. Army... Um, How does America keep their army loyal to America rather than loyal to the leader of America in the way that the ancient Roman Republic couldn't? That is a very good question, um, I, but I, I don't know enough about American politics. Are, for example, how are, like, how are uh, American cadets trained at West Point? Um, I don't really know. How, how deeply are they imbued with Republican values? Um, are they made to swear an, an oath of loyalty um, to, for example, the Constitution? I, I don't know. It's, it's very well possible. I mean, in Belgium, when I was a public servant many moons ago, I also had to swear the oath of loyalty to the king and the, the, the Belgian people and the Constitution and whatnot. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if there was this tradition in the U.S. military, that they are the, that they are serving and securing the interests of the American people and the American Republic as defined by the Constitution. The one thing that relieved me was seeing that uh, all the conservative news channels didn't go along with what Trump was saying, and I thought they might. 
Well, no, uh, indeed, um, Murdoch again. Um, to his credit, I mean, I'm not a big, not a big fan of Rupert Murdoch, but indeed, already quite was yesterday or the day the day before yesterday, before Pennsylvania was decided. Um, all the murder controlled out like the the New York Post, um, or is it the Washington Post? The Washington Post, sorry, um, Fox News, the Wall Street Journal. Um, they all saw the writing on the wall. Well, Murdoch saw the writing on the wall. He's a very cunning man, uh, and he ordered his entire apparatus in the states to turn against. Well, not turn against Trump, but to call on Trump to concede. Probably because Murdoch is smart enough that in the long run, Trump cannot win this fight. And that if he commits, uh, well, if he bets on this losing horse, he, his business ventures in the US will be damaged. So he, he, he took a very crafty decision. Before. Good decision as well, I think. It's a good decision, yes. So mm. he's, he's, he's not as evil as he's, um, I mean, he's, he's a businessman, right? So he has his business interests in mind, uh, and ultimately he he let his business interests, I think, guide his decision. Is a specific type of geography a prerequisite to a civil war even being possible? Do the uh, states that hate each other have to be in a specific geographical, like you know, the first American Civil War, North v. South? Um, does it matter if does it does it prevent a, a civil war from taking place? If every you know states that hate each other are scattered amongst each other, for example, is it much harder to actually initiate a civil war uh, in those circumstances, um, or it doesn't make any difference? It makes a difference. I mean, civil war. If there had been a civil war in the U.S., it would have been it would have been fought um, in sort of the what what are now the battleground states. Whereas in places like California or the East Coast, um, New York, I don't think those militias would have the same sway as, for example, in, um, well, where, where was it uh, that these militia men took to the streets? and years, A couple of years ago. With the- and even recently, you know, mm. and the Black, the, the Black Lives Matter protests, and then you had mm. the anti-protests. Mm. Um, so I think it would have been in certain parts of the country, but not perhaps a wholesale conflagration. And I think it would also have been something, therefore, that the National Guard would have been able to stamp out Mm. fairly quickly. Um, Yeah. But Trump, I mean, what he... Some of the behaviors are extremely irresponsible. Uh, Like... I saw his one of his sons, uh, the dark-haired son. Uh, I think that's Don Jr. Yes, who actually said like to the cameras that they were going to fight this this fraud and mm. f- and defend the presidency to the death. I and, find that very dangerous. And they wouldn't forget the Republicans who weren't supporting them. And exactly, yeah, that's getting... almost seditious. That's almost calling calling the people to mm. to rise in sedition. I find it very very dangerous. Yeah, I'd, I've thought this whole time that. Whatever Trump's faults are, he was—he wasn't until now the dictator that they'd said he was. Yes, and that you know, I never thought he was you know a Russian asset. I never, you know, uh, don't get me wrong, plenty wrong with the guy, but it was the first time that I'd been like he's worse, he's as bad as his worst critics said he would be. 
was yes. the first moment I was like, yes, that's it's a bit too far. Uh, he, he certainly behaves, I think he, um, he missed an opportunity to sort of um, leave, leave with, with some honor, some of his honor intact. Now it's very disgraceful. Mm. He still has time to come to his senses. He still has two months basically to, to come around and make up for it. But he has already done a lot of lasting damage to his brand by behaving the way he did. Mm. And his allegations of mass voter fraud um, are not only disgraceful, but, but um, extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Yeah. So you think at the end of the day, it will be a peaceful transition? Uh, I think there will be because um, more and more people around Trump will abandon ship. Um, already there were, like there was, I, I read somewhere in some American outlet that um, people are no longer showing up to work to the White House, that this, the mood is very dark. So I think everybody who is, who is a little bit clever and thinking about their own survival will... will on the other hand, there's also people like Ted Cruz um, who are well, uh, behaving, who are following Trump. Uh, and uh, it does show that there's a significant part of the Republican Party that is actually willing to go under or risk, risk everything. Which is surprising. Absolutely. Fortunately, there's people like Mitt Romney um, uh, who, did, who did call this out. So it's going to be very interesting. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Republican Party would descend into some form of civil war mm. um, after this. You always hear people say that uh, Trump's just a symptom of a bigger problem. I agree, yeah, absolutely. What's the bigger problem? I think, but of course I'm a historian, but I think what we're seeing now is the are the ultimate consequences of... Um, Four solid decades of Reaganomics, of divestment from um, education, um, um, of of brutal neoliberalism. Um, so so many, a lot of these even white Americans. They are um, well. There are many of them are not quite educated and they are genuinely fearful of the future economically, especially. I mean, they see the world changing rapidly. Uh, and there's uh, like, was it Oprah Winfrey who famously said that the average American is two paychecks away from the gutter? I mean, there is no welfare state there as we know it here in Australia. Um, so I think this is one of the uh, negative results of, um, of, four decades of dismantling and undermining welfare, public education system, uh, whatnot. It, it, it sort of, yeah, the fabric of society is being eroded relentlessly. Do you think they can turn the ship around, America? They can, but it will require the sort of thing that Roosevelt pulled off, like a genuine massive new deal. But you have to bear in mind that Roosevelt, uh, most of his reforms were all achieved in the early 1930s when he still had the House and the Senate. Which Biden doesn't have. He has the House, maybe the Senate. Um, but for example, after 1937, Roosevelt's hands were almost tied. 
um, he couldn't do much. It's almost a shame that the only president who's had the Senate during his presidency has been the most divisive president. <laughs> yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like Obama yes. didn't have the Senate. Yes. Uh, now Biden won't have the Senate. And yes. the one person who could have actually brought people together was the last person who was going to do that. Yes. Trump. Yes, Trump missed opportunities, absolutely. Mm. Um, but I think that the false rhetoric, Trump always claimed to be like the champion of the... The, the common American, but I think there was a lot of uh, false rhetoric there because he was really serving the interests of the the big moneyed. I feel, uh, I feel he would. Trump's strategy was always like he would always thrive so long as um, the Republicans and the Democrats were divided. So his strategy, this whole presidency, has been to say something that is so close to being unforgivable <laughs> that the Democrats say to their Republican counterparts, how can you stand by this person who says this thing, but it's just not bad enough that his loyal Republicans who hate the Democrats will out of spite just say, yes. like, no, nah, he didn't mean it that way or he didn't mean yes. it like that. Absolutely. Um, and he's, so his whole political strategy um, is based on dividing the country. He's, he's more powerful the more divided the country is. Yes, yes. Yes, but uh, fortunately um, this time around it backfired again. I think he... He was too divisive and uh, especially antagonizing because we shouldn't forget that it's um, to no small extent uh, Biden should be thanking uh, the black minority on his knees. Mm -hmm. I mean, Atlanta, Pittsburgh, um, Georgia, Philadelphia. Georgia ended up going with Biden. Yes, yes. But courtesy of Atlanta, mm -hmm. where there's a, a large uh, black, uh, population of black, uh, black Americans. Mm -hmm. So one would, I mean, Trump sort of alienated those people at his own expense. Mm. Um, and remains to be seen, we're all very happy that Biden is, is the won the ticket. But again, as historians, you can only judge. He reminds me of Yeltsin. Hmm? He reminds me of Yeltsin, Biden. Yeltsin. Yeltsin was a drunk, of course, right? I'd rather that than <laughs> senility, but... That's just. Let's hope not, the, because after Yeltsin came Putin. Mm. I was. Um, did you see many of the other Democratic candidates that during the primaries? Did uh, you watch any of the debates? Or I, I watched snippets of the debates. The first debate I couldn't watch because mm. it was horrible. The, the the debate between the VPs was more interesting. Even no, sorry, I mean the um, not the primary with the is it the primary where the where the Democratic nominees. Oh, um, no, no, I haven't, no, I wasn't been watching those debates, no. Because there were just so many others who seemed so much more competent than Biden, and I was like, yeah. any one of them would win in a landslide. Absolutely, but they were not, no, well, that's what you say, but America mm. wasn't ready for um, for Elizabeth Warren, uh, even Bernie Sanders. Well, people, everyone always says Bernie was far too um, left. He wasn't centrist enough, but it's like Biden's reputation is as a centrist, but I still feel that he's sort of bowed down to the identity politics of the extreme left, um, even just by saying, uh, we're, I'm going to make sure that my VP is a female person of colour. I mean, that's immediately just sort of, yes. that screams extreme left-wing ideologies yeah, rather yes. than a centrist. Well, yes and no. Um, I mean, it, it is also a smart centrist move to the extent that the, the reality today is that um, a uh, millions and millions of Americans are people of color, mm. uh, of non-European descent. And I think it's only right that you have somebody who reflects 
who reflects that segment of the population. Mm. So um, I understand what you mean, but I also see... I also see the value of having somebody like Kamala Harris. Even just in a symbolic gesture or? It's more than just symbolic. She's very, she's, uh, she's razor sharp. Mm. Um, she's not, she's not as lefty as some people um, would no, like to definitely believe. Definitely not. Yeah. Um, and you shouldn't forget, uh, it, it's far more than symbolic because Biden is aging. Mm. I wouldn't say elderly. These days people grow older. Uh, but still, statistically, the chance that she becomes president by default is very high. Uh, he might also, for example, call it quits after one term and say, well, um, you run now. We don't know. Uh, he might be a two-term president. He might decide that an, another campaign would be too much. You don't know. So I think Harris is certainly being put in a position uh, where she will be very significant for years to come. Uh, and she'll be a vigorous vice president, sort of the way that um, Gore was a, was was quite an active vice president. Mm. Um, but yeah. I still, I know, it still just makes me sort of uncomfortable to think. Like I haven't figured this out in my head completely, but it's just I feel that a position like that should should be based. Purely on competence. Now it's a matter of giving equal opportunity to, mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. everyone to achieve that, mm -hmm. which I think Kamala Harris um, has been given just by virtue of the fact that she's got there. But I think part of perhaps partly what rubs uh, certainly the Republicans the wrong way is, well, that, that sort of we're going to pick someone based on the color of their skin, based on their... Yes, Genitalia. but would it have been okay, you think, to have four male, uh, well, so two two front runners with two running mates, all white males? I don't think it would necessarily have. It wouldn't have gone down well with the people they were trying to get elected by, but that doesn't necessarily make it. I I, I believe you can. I, I believe you can still achieve both. You can still make sure that the the ticket is representative mm. of this of the land, but also pick. A very competent person, and Kamala Harris is arguably very competent. For example, when I look at the, the European, most competent candidate, I thought of the four. Yes, which is, but again, that just sort of speaks to the. I almost resent that it's a symbolic gesture rather than a. I mean, if if we yes, but in, politics is about symbols. Um, it's it's about policy, but it's also about symbols. For example, I have I find it quite difficult to to see how the Australian government is. It's largely all um, middle-aged white men, whereas Australia is such a diverse country. Uh, you would expect a bit more diversity. Um, I think it, if, 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 if we truly want to have representative government, um, any government should more or less reflect um, the, the wider population at large. Uh, but the, the, the people that are in can power... I, but can I... Can I uh, can a black president not represent his white constituents? And, and can, can a white president not represent his black can, constituents? Let's bring this back to the, mm. the, to the example of the Roman Republic. Mm -hmm. uh, why, what made the empire so successful, uh, even vis-a-vis -vis the Republic, was because Caesar, and then after Caesar, especially Claudius, understood that you cannot run an enduring empire on sort of a even an unspoken uh, uh, basis of segregation. They 
consciously integrated the elites of the subject peoples into the Senate. So, for example, somebody, there was an Arab emperor, there was an African emperor, uh, there were Spanish, indigenous Spanish emperors. So basically, the, the senator from Syria would, would still remain a bigwig in Syria, but he would also be a senator of Rome and represent all of, all of Rome. But was it, was, was it forced or was it um, a matter of those men were competent enough at what they did it, to, to, and it, that, said, that speaks to... Claudius what? forced the issue. He did, how, did he, how did Claudius force the issue? Um, at some point it was debated, should we allow um, the elites of Gaul into the Senate? Mm-hmm. And the conservatives in the Senate said, no way, um, for all sorts of reasons. And Claudius said, the Romans, we've always had a history of um, um, valuing people for their merits, not their ethnicity or whatnot. So Claudius actually um, sort of introduced a law that opened up the Senate or made set a precedent, an imperial edict opening up the Senate. So he, he consciously forced the issue. Mm-hmm. Were there any, uh, I'm assuming there were plagues in ancient Rome, but were there any significant, what was the most significant plague in ancient Roman history? Ooh, there were several um, plagues, uh, but the first sort of equivalent of what we call a pandemic on record was the one that uh, devastated much of the Mediterranean and the world for that matter, because it's also documented in China and, and the Middle East, was in the 160s CE. Scientists believe it might have been smallpox. Uh, And then uh, there was another similar outbreak in the 280s CE. And then there was the big Justinian plague uh, of the uh, 540s CE. Uh, Widely believed to have been bubonic plague, but now um, there are dissident voices who argue that we can't know for sure. And so it's an ongoing debate. Your mother has sent me some uh, work about the the, the, the 14th century plague, how that is uh, fiercely debated. Um, debated in what sense? Well, what, what, what was the, uh, the pathogen? Oh. We don't really know, and that's a scary bit. Hmm. Yeah. So yes, there were plagues, um, absolutely. Is what makes, is COVID uh, significant in that it's the first well, I think it, it is the first significant pandemic in a globalized society. Well, since uh, the span, the so-called Spanish flu, yes, mm. yeah. But even even in more of a sense of um, uh, the world's reaction to COVID uh, is a lot more coordinated than the reaction to the Spanish flu could have been, like internationally. And in that sense, uh, yes. Although already it, uh, with the Spanish flu, Australia did very well because the, the the policy here was very smart. But the US did very poorly because there was it does wasn't that, as bad. It is wasn't that because a, all the states could make up their own mind about how they wanted to? There I'm, could be no coordinated. I'd have to check the details again, but fact is that the the mortality rates in the states were were amongst the worst mm. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So. How do you think? Um, how do you think the next four years plays out for America under uh, Biden? Well, uh, Biden will have. Um, I mean, I think the easier bit of his work will be um, restoring 
um, American influence and alliances across the globe because a lot of the allies will just jump at the occasion, um, including Australia, with sort of a sigh of relief. But I think uh, domestically he faces a far more formidable... Um, I mean, because Trumpism will, will, will remain. Uh, these 70 million people, they won't go away. It was a very contested election. So there he will... He and his administration will, will have to embark on um, inclusive and comprehensive reform. But Bring the Republicans in. If possible, but the Republicans, some of them have a visceral hatred of anything that is uh, liberal and Democrat. So bring perhaps part of the Republicans in, talk to moderates. Mitt Romney's. Possibly, um, and, and try to achieve something that, sort of addresses the root causes rather than just fighting the symptoms. How important do you think it is for uh, leaders of empires to uh, maintain uh, uh, international problems for their own domestic benefit? Like in that article you sent me from your friend John Rich, by John Rich, sorry, yes. talks about how... Uh, making the emergency permanent, how Augustus had to, in order to justify his uh, domestic autocratic rule, he had to at least maintain a facade of um, problems in the provinces. Tiberius already, Augustus had to do this because he was the man who sort of really stabbed the, 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 dying, republic and the dying republic to the death. I mean, he killed the ailing Sorry, Tiberius did or Augustus? Augustus. Augustus. But by the end of Augustus' reign, the idea of monarchy was sort of accepted and entrenched. So, for example, when Tiberius came to power, instead of getting all his powers progressively like Augustus over decades, Tiberius just gets them in a single, uh, get, gets the most important one, ones in a single go and for life. Because now it's been accepted by the elites that there is a strong man. And uh, the first thing Tiberius does is also abandon this policy of emergency at the frontiers. Uh, the, 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 the example is um, his decision to abandon the conquest of Germany. When he came to power, there was a massive war going on in Germany. It was a retaliatory war because of the, the Teutoburg forest. But it was also... It was not only retaliation, but it was also consolidating Augustus' conquest of Germany. Uh, and Tiberius made a conscious decision. He just weighed the benefits, the cost-benefit, and pulled the army out because he no longer needed this state of emergency to sort of entrench his own rule in Rome. Because it was already, the Roman people were already desensitized to the idea and of And especially empire. the Senate also, mm. yes. Do you feel that Tiberius for the first half of his reign was a good emperor? Uh, Tiberius arguably was uh, one of the best emperors, um, but he had a lot of tough luck in his personal life, uh, like loss, um, but also um, his, his Praetorian guard, guards commander conspiring. He had also... He, he, Sejanus? Yes, mm. he had also difficulty with the Senate's sort of um, uneasy... Um, sycophantic behavior. He seems like he became very jaded and just... Yes. He was the head of the empire, but at the same time, he was more disgusted by the empire than anyone. Well, he was more disgusted, I think, by um, 
the Senate and by politic by Senate and by politics in Rome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think there was something uh, in the Julio Claudian bloodline that tended toward madness? <laughs> to put it lightly, no, no, no. no. Suetonius would he wants us to believe this, but that's sort of uh, because they had this crude idea of uh, of gen- like genetic predispos- predisposition. But no, I mean, Claudius uh, was a very smart man, a very clever man. Nero was also no fool. He was a bit, he was eccentric and in the end too much. Um, Caligula was clearly... clearly Caligula is the obvious example, but I just find it so strange that Caligula had Germanicus as a father who was the, almost like another Caesar in terms of how much the people loved him, how much he was respected, not a madman. By any, no, no, any stretch no, of the imagination. No. And yet, who was his wife again? Germanicus and... Um, Agrippina. Agrippina. They, and they produce this monster. But it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a shallow gene pool, of course, and mm. produce this monster. You should not forget that um, um, Caligula had been raised in, uh, in a very insecure situation. All his siblings were eliminated. Tiberius kept him as Because he knew he was a monster. But also as a security against Sejanus. Mm. That was the one child he wouldn't give up to Sejanus. Mm. Um, so he must have grown up in a, in a very paranoid atmosphere. Mm. And then when he comes to power, he's a young man. He's How like, old was he? He was 19 or something. He was, he's almost like a teen. Mm. Of, I mean, every emperor who came to power as a very young man went wrong. And it's almost the fir- the longer the empire um, had been around, the less meritocratic the um, the heir was because he's so, uh, you know, in the Republic, it was through pure merit and talent that you rose through the system. Not, I mean, obviously there was there were privileges afforded to the senatorial class, but uh, someone like Caligula has never had to work for a thing in his life in the same way that a young Julius Caesar would have. Yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, perfect. Well, thanks for coming on, Frederick. Um, Pleasure. It's my first podcast, so um, yeah, really, really appreciate you coming on and nerding out about Rome with me. It was an absolute uh, pleasure on a great day for it. <laughs>